really my distinct pleasure to introduce uh, my, my friend, uh, Congressman Adam Smith. Uh, I knew Adam when he was uh, a fledgling uh, state senator in the Washington State Legislature. So I'm here to greet you from what we call the other Washington. Actually, this is the other Washington. We're, we're from the real Washington. Uh, I wanted to kind of share some thoughts I have about uh, how um, Congressman Smith has really conducted himself over uh, a incredible uh, and, and very impactful uh, political career. And to do that, I kind of want to make reference to uh, two political titans uh, from Washington State who, when Adam and I were coming of age politically, really dominated our delegation. Uh, and that was uh, Warren G. Magnuson, or Maggie, as we called him, and Henry M. Jackson, uh, or Scoop. Uh, and, and really, for about a 25-year period, Maggie and Scoop not only dominated uh, the congressional delegation in the state of Washington, but really had huge impact uh, throughout the United States. Uh, and they kind of divided up uh, their portfolios. Uh, Scoop took care of the guns, and Maggie took care of the butter. Uh, and between the two of them, um, they did very, very well for Washington State, uh, but were always scrupulously fair in their uh, use of federal largesse. 50% uh, of the federal money went to Washington, and 50% went to the rest of the country. And uh, that worked very, very well for a long period of time. Uh, but in many ways, Adam really personifies and is the true heir to the, the legacy of Maggie and Scoop uh, in two very significant ways that I, I wanted to share with you. Uh, Maggie always said, uh, after you know, he spent 30, 40 years uh, in Congress, saw a lot of people come and go, and, and, and said in, in Congress that they're, 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 they're workhorses and show horses. And Adam really is the personification of a workhorse. He practices the art of uh, legislation uh, as a craft, uh, not seeking the headlines, not seeking the, the blinking lights, but really delving into policy and learning about policy. And, take in, and if you t spend any time talking to Adam, you see that really as he approaches a political issue, uh, it's not from the standpoint of ideology. It's the standpoint of what's best for the United States. And, and taking the time and the thought and the foresight to look at public policy issues and look at policy uh, from an objective standpoint, not in terms of what's going to further uh, the particular uh, uh, flavor of the month, but uh, further the interest of the United States. Uh, and, and that's really where Adam really is the, is the heir, I think, to, to, to Maggie. But also with respect to Scoop, uh, Scoop Jackson is, really was uh, a very momentous fi figure in the development of American security policy. Uh, and Scoop always said that partisanship stops at the water's edge. Uh, Scoop Jackson was a very, very strong Democrat, but when it came to the national security of the United States, uh, there, were, there were no Democrats, there were no Republicans, there was only what was right for the United States. And Adam, in an increasingly polarized and difficult political environment, has maintained bipartisanship in his stewardship uh, on, the, uh, on the House Armed Services Committee, working across the aisle with only one uh, objective, which is what is the right thing for the United States, what is in the national security interest of the United States, and how can we as a nation move forward. So it is my distinct pleasure to introduce my friend uh, of many, many years, uh, Congressman Adam Smith. Well, well, thank you, Matt. I appreciate that, that kind of introduction. I appreciate the opportunity to work together uh, through the years on a wide variety of issues. Um, and I think this is a very important topic that we're talking about today, um, focusing on Africa, but focusing on what our national security interests are in Africa. And I think the biggest challenge going forward 
is we need a whole-of-government approach to achieving stability. And a lot of this, quite frankly, grew out of the threat from 9-11. Basically, we learned on 9-11 that unstable states are a threat to us. Ungoverned spaces are where extremists thrive. And there were a lot of different responses to 9-11, one of which was to, to directly attack the problem. And this was what Stanley McChrystal came up with. It, it takes a network to beat a network. And so focus very much on the organization, in this case Al-Qaeda, led by Osama bin Laden, that had attacked us. Who were these people? Uh, what was their organization like? Where did they get their money? Where did they get their supporters? And that was a very military approach. Um, and it was largely successful um, in terms of going after core Al-Qaeda. And in that whole of government approach, they used a wide variety of different agencies to pull together all of the skills that we had um, to try and defeat that specific terrorist threat. But the broader problem remains, and the broader problem is that in ungoverned spaces, in places that are not prospering, it is fertile ground for extremists. Now, frequently you will hear people say that, well, you know, that's not really true because, well, basically Osama bin Laden was rich. So, you know, it's not people who are struggling, you know, it's always, you know, even if you look at the hijackers on 9-11, a lot of them were educated, but that's not really the point. There will always be people out there who come up with an ideology that they are convinced is the perfect way to run the world. Um, all that is left, basically, is for them to be in charge and to jam it down everybody else's throat. Um, you could sort of walk around this country, the world, wherever, and you can find probably about 100 of those different ideologies. The question is, do they find people to follow them? Do they build an organization? And they find people to follow them where there is no hope, where people basically look out and say, I don't know how I'm going to feed my children. They don't have economic freedom. They don't have political freedom. They don't have the basic idea that when they get up in the morning, they can be pretty confident that their family's going to be all right. So when you look at Africa and you look at what we're trying to do there, stability is enormously important. And I know Matt has done, done work in Africa, and I've done quite a bit of work with uh, the State Department and USAID. So when we look at what we want to do there, I think we really need to look at foreign aid and development, diplomacy, and defense. How do we build up the capacity of governments in Africa to govern successfully? And, and there, there have been some successes um, throughout the continent. It is many of the fastest growing economies are there. Um, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, when George W. Bush developed it, um, was aimed at that idea, was let's work with the governments to build sustainable governance. And it's, it's rule of law, it's educating women, it's health care. All of those things contribute to a stable society. And that is where I think our focus needs to be, and diplomacy. The more allies we have, the better off we are. And even on the military side, when you look at the Horn of Africa, I always use this as a, a good example. In Iraq and Afghanistan, we've tried to fundamentally change those governments. And we've, gosh, invested an enormous amount of blood and treasure in both of those places. Um, and then you look at Somalia, which is, has been a significant challenge. Much, much smaller U.S. footprint, but we use diplomacy to build alliances, alliances with Kenya and Ethiopia and Uganda. Um, and these countries have been helpful to us um, in making some progress in Somalia and uh, stability, all at a much lower cost to the United States 
in both terms of, of money and in lives. But as importantly, it works better if you don't come in from the US with the military and say, we're going to fix your country. Um, imagine here in the US if some foreign military showed up and said, hmm, we're going to fix your country. It's not well received, even in places that are, are desperate. I mean, some of them will accept it um, because they're desperate for, for any help they can get. But at the end of the day, if you're driving down the streets of your city and you see a foreign power's military driving down next to you, you're not happy about it. So we, we'd rather not do that. And one of my great concerns is we are placing too much emphasis on the military, too much emphasis on the Department of Defense. One of the things that grew out of this process that I'm talking about, and it wasn't just Africa, we've, we've done it in the Philippines, we've done it in various places in the Middle East. This is sort of, um, you, you, gosh, I'm spacing on the word for it. Uh, but uh, at any rate, um, this is how we tried to build capacity for these countries. And, and the military got involved in a lot of this. I mean, there were places in all of those places I just mentioned where the military was drilling wells and building schools and providing health care and doing all of that stuff that you would traditionally think of as USAID or the State Department. And the reason for that is because the Defense Department has the money. I mean, look at the State Department budget, look at the Defense Department budget. And this isn't good. And I've heard a whole series of Secretary of States, going back at least to Bob Gates, uh, sorry, Secretaries of Defense, um, come up to the Armed Services Committee and say, you have to fund the State Department. You know, I think, um, Current Secretary of Defense Mattis said, said it best. You know, if you if you don't fund the State Department, you know, you you better give me more ammunition because I'm going to need it. Um, so DOD gets this, but then you look at the numbers. You know, not two weeks after Secretary Mattis made that comment, they the president released a budget that increased the defense budget by 15 percent and cut the State Department by almost 30. We are not doing it. We are not giving the support to the various agencies out there that could actually help build sustainable societies in places like the Horn of Africa, and then where we're having arguably even more trouble um, in West Africa with Niger and Mali and Libya and all the fallout that comes from the unstable governments that are there. Uh, there are several narco states on the west coast of Africa um, that are basically run by the drug trade. And yes, terrorism is part of it, but it's also International crime, it's human trafficking, it's drugs, and all of that funds a lot of these terrorist organizations and then threaten Europe and ultimately us and certainly threaten the stability of the region. But to rely solely on the military creates a big problem. So if we're really serious about this, we need to look at how we do development and how we do diplomacy and make sure that that is in the lead, not the military. Last thing I'll say for or sitting down um, turning it over to the general and taking your questions is, now, there are things that we're doing in the military that, that do make sense. And, and part of this in Africa is training um, friendly governments so that they can provide security. And this is where primarily the special operations forces have been at work. I chaired the subcommittee on um, uh, terrorism for three years and flew all over the world seeing what our special op operations people are doing. And, you know, you see a lot of this, you think of the special ops guys as the people who killed Osama bin Laden, you know, kick in doors and basically shoot bad guys. But they actually do a lot more than that. Um, they are the tip of the spear also on development. 
Um, they work with local uh, people to develop their capacity, certainly in terms of defending themselves, but even beyond that, um, building relationships. Uh, the Special Operations Command refers this, to this as preparation of the environment. I always like that euphemism as, you know, as if they're planting corn or something. Uh, but their point is, basically, they're building friendships and building capacity to help deal with instability to stop it from getting out of control. And that, I think, is a positive. I like what the Special Operations Command has done. But there has been a huge change under the Trump administration that has gone largely unnoticed. And this was what was brought home by the four uh, service members who were killed in Niger. Whereas before, there was a significant reticence in putting our troops forward and having them lead the fight. They were there to train and assist, not to lead the fight. The Trump administration has pretty much left all of that behind. And in a number of places, not just in Africa, but elsewhere, we have our military out leading in a fight that the you know, legislative branch in the United States, for the most part, we don't even know what's going on. Um, and that, that, that's wrong on two levels. Number one, the legislative branch is the one that has the power to declare war and should continue to do so. And if we have our military actually there fighting affirmatively, then the legislative branch ought to have a say in what they're doing. But second, I'll go back to what I said earlier, it's not the best way to build capacity of partner countries, to have our military showing up and doing all the work and taking the lead in what should be primarily a local fight. So if we're really going to get after you know, building capacity uh, in, in countries that are struggling, countries like Somalia and Libya and Mali, um, Niger and a bunch of others, it's going to have to come again from development and diplomacy and it's also going to have to be locally driven, not the US military. And I do understand why the US military takes the lead. We're better at it by a lot, okay? The US military over the course of the last 17 years, unfortunately, has been enormously well-trained in fighting just about every type of fight um, on an insurgency level that you can imagine. And they're really good at it. And, that, and that's great. It's good to have that skill set. It's not enough to go into a foreign country and take over the fight like that. Inevitably, that leads to conflicts, and you don't build the capacity of the domestic country to ultimately protect itself. And you don't build the support of the local population either. Because again, what's the local population going to think of their leaders when they look up and see that the US military has to show up to save them? Not a popular thing. So in some, yes, the military still has to be involved in this. But we have got to make a, a transition here. Pull them back, first of all. They should not be at the front of this fight. And second of all, fund and reform development in particular, but reinvest in diplomacy so that those are key parts of how we can build relationships and build stability in key parts of the world. Uh, I look forward to your, your questions, and I appreciate uh, putting on this event this morning. Thank you. So I, I wanted to kind of open things up. Uh, we've seen uh, really in the last uh, 12 months an expansion of our um, involvement in, 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 in Africa at the military level. And 
My question to both the, the general and the congressman is how, how do we, and I want to kind of get use this to kick things off, uh, how do we continue to uh, address what appears to be a growing security threat in Africa while still uh, maintaining some control and keeping the situation from uh, getting out of control? Well, let me start out and give the congressman a little time to catch his breath. First of all, I'd like to recognize that, that we have a true expert in the audience, uh, General Carter Ham is here, former commander of Africa Command. Uh, uh, ought to corner him uh, during this to, to chat with him about his experiences. Uh, but when uh, you know, we look at the, uh, the situation, uh, particularly in in Africa, you know, when I graduated from the University of Tennessee at Martin, I had a degree in agriculture and a commission in the Marine Corps, and I didn't know the two would be so intertwined uh, throughout my career uh, that they have. Uh, when you look at uh, one of the uh, examples from what the congressman talked about in terms of, uh, of using other than military force, uh, when we were in Djibouti, uh, we didn't have the uh, capability to put it, nor did we want to put a lot of military forces in there. So we used economy of force operations, and one of the most effective task forces we had was a team composed of the well driller that he mentioned, a National Guard unit from Guam, and a uh, veterinarian outfit from Georgia. And why were they so effective? Because they went out in the hinterland, where Djibouti, Djibouti is mostly rural except for one little city, and the economy is based on goats and how the uh, society functions is the women are responsible for getting the water every day uh, to cook and, and uh, sustainment. And uh, the men take care of the goats. In that particular situation in the area, you know, the women had to walk uh, several miles to a well to get the water, and everybody knows that you know, walking in those conditions is tough. And, uh, you know, when mama's not happy, no one is happy. And she wasn't happy after she had to do that, walk that far. And the uh, goats uh, were wormy. And, uh, you know, uh, high mortality rate among the offspring. And so the uh, team came in. They drilled a well closer to town where mama didn't have to go as far. Made her happier. And the goats uh, reduced the mortality rate and increase the numbers. And what you had is an overall increase in society and as well as the economy. And with that, you had a, a building confidence in the government and reducing the environment that's conducive to the growth, growth of terrorists and others. And you look at other places across there, and. Uh, you know, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, nearly a billion people live there, a billion people. And you, uh, the USDA came out with an assessment for the next 10 years of what food security is going to be like yesterday, and it's pretty, you know, a good thing to read. We're going to be making progress in a lot of areas, but when you're talking about that area, which is seeing, uh, uh, you know, ISIS-like organizations uh, grow, uh, where you're seeing climate change, uh, although USDA called it extreme weather events, uh, move the uh, 
the desert south at about a mile a year. As you watch, and I, I've been there as late as last year, flying over Lake Chad and see the reduction. And you see the movement of cattle south into the area where you have farmers operating, and you see the conflict that exists there. And those are the type of situations where a, you know, a, a Marine with an M16 is, is useless. Somebody that comes in with ideas about how to make maximum use of the resources, brings in more vibrant seed, uh, provides the capability to build uh, infrastructure that supports the people, has the real impact. And those are two areas where we were successful in Djibouti, but it should have been the civilians instead of the military. And then there's the opportunity in the Lake Chad Basin, for, for example, to do something now before it continues to deteriorate. Two, two of those points there, and I should have mentioned that climate change is an enormous issue. Um, it is going to have a disproportionate impact on poorer nations, and particularly nations that have already struggled with access to water. Um, so we're going to have to reckon with that, and also having a policy to address climate change would be enormously important. The other thing, building off what he said, and I, I said way back when I first started working on Special Operations Command issues, um, there was a retired uh, special ops person who had worked in Libya uh, in the early 80s, and he said his most important asset was they had a dentist. Um, and that's what the local population needed. So it wasn't a matter of going in there and winning a fight. They were providing for the needs of the local population, and in so doing, they were building greater stability and greater partnerships. Um, and that, I think, is the lesson. I, again, I worry that the general approach from current administration is, oh, well, I'll go ahead and say it, kill them all and let God sort them out, basically. Um, there has been a tripling of the bombings that have been done um, since the Trump administration came in. There has been also a rather significant increase in civilian casualties as a result in, you know, in the Middle East as well as in Africa in terms of the campaigns that we've conducted. Um, those statistics are hard to nail down, I'll grant you. Um, but, you know, more force is not going to be the solution to bringing stability to places like Libya and Somalia. And don't get me wrong, um, there are terrorists out there and people who threaten the security of a country, and there's going to be a military component to this. I think people who think we can just pull out and everything will be fine are kidding themselves. And a you know, greatest example of that is I, I mentioned how um, General McChrystal had built the network, did a very good job of taking down the network that hit us on 9-11, you know, but then all of a sudden things started popping up in Yemen on Walawaki, uh, was plotting and planning direct attacks, two that almost hit us, the bombing, um, the underwear bomber in Detroit, um, and the package bombs that were going on, um, I forget if it was FedEx or UPS, maybe both. And that came directly out of Al-Awaki and the group that he had built up in Yemen. I would not suggest for a moment that we just let them do that. But why were they able to do that? They were able to do that because of the fundamental instability that was present in Yemen that gave them the open space to go to. Um, and if we worked on the humanitarian crisis in places like Yemen, people like Al-Awaki and others would not have those places to go. I think we need to keep that in mind.
Questions from the audience? Yes. Yeah. yeah. <coughs> uh, just I. She's coming. Yeah. <coughs> I'm at a recent conference uh, on counterterrorism in Morocco. The head of NDU said you can surge militaries, you can surge diplomats, you can surge economic resources, but you can't surge trust, uh, which confirms several of the points that were just made. Um, uh, the, uh, I, I would pause it, and listening to the leaders of various militaries that were there, they, they started this week sort of talking about civil society and citizenries as the enemy, as over-focused on human rights, you know, and helping the terrorists. Um, I'm referring to recent reports, for example, on BBC that uh, Nigerian forces, you know, demand payment of petrol to go out and work in an area you know, from local citizens, that, this sort of thing. Um, uh, and I remember comments that Carter Ham has made uh, on um, maybe uh, under-prioritization of human rights in Mali prior to Operation Serval. So what is your thinking? I'm agreeing with you here, but I just want a further elaboration. What, what is your thinking about civ-mil relations and helping our friends do better in terms of governance? I would just, one last comment, I would say that as I, I've traveled all over Africa and lived there for 12 years, um, I don't see ungoverned spaces as the main problem. I see bad governance, which is everywhere as I the think main problem. That's very true. Yeah. Jeff Bjornstead. Sorry. Should have turned that off. Um, no, I think you're absolutely right. Um, this program, and, and, and trust is, is a big part of the issue. And there's sort of two component parts of that. The, the second one, which I'm going to avoid for a while because it's really, really difficult, um, I'll get to in a second. Um, but the first one is trust of, of us, of the United States. And this is where I think huh, America does not exactly do itself any favors in terms of how it builds those relationships. And you can see the contrast between President Obama and President Trump and how the bulk of the country react to this. Most Americans do not know that we sponsored the coup that overthrew the democratically elected government in Iran in 1953. Every single Iranian knows that. Most Americans do not know that we were responsible for propping up Mobutu in the Congo, which basically blew the living crap out of roughly half of Africa. Um, because you've got the massive Congo in the middle there, and then all the countries that were surrounding it, that we propped him up to fight communist insurgencies, while he just destroyed that country. You know, treated the citizens horribly, ripped them off. You know, we have that history, all right? And most of the people in the rest of the world see that. So for us to show up like, you know, hey, we liberated Europe, we're great, you gotta love us. That's not going to fly, all right? And you know, the thing is, as Americans, we're like, I don't know. We think we're better. We're better than we actually are. And I remember when you know the the right derisively described President Obama's first ever policy, uh, overseas trip as the apology tour. Um, well, yeah. When you got something to apologize for, the first thing you ought to do is frickin' apologize, all right? Um, if you want to build a relationship with the rest of the world, if you want to walk around like, hey, we're the biggest, baddest guy in the block, so screw you, we get to do what we want, then don't be surprised when people get pissed off at you. Um, so on our side, in terms of building the trust, number one, we have to acknowledge that history. And America first does not acknowledge that history. Um, whatever you may, you know, 
BS fill in behind American First. And I've heard a lot of very, very smart conservative um, internationalist politicians try to spin America First. Um, you know, like, no, really, what he's saying is, you know, so it's really, no. When you hear America First, if you're not America, basically, and I can't do the gesture here because, forgive me, I, I grew up in, in, in SeaTac in South King County. I, I tend to, to swear a little bit more and be a little bit more blunt. But basically what America First means is, screw you, all right? It's about us. And never forget, it's about us, all right? That's not going to help you. And we need partnerships, desperately, in the world right now. So that's, that's what we need to do about us is acknowledge what we've done in the past and try to make an effort to, in the future, say, look, yeah, we've got interests here, but so do you, and we want to help you. Now, the harder part is picking your friends. That's the part that's very, very difficult. Um, because once you get in engaged and involved, and you know, certainly uh, General Ham knows this better, better than I do, um, you know, everyone's going to have problems, like even in Rwanda. I mean, Kagame was the you know, star for the longest time, came in after the genocide. But now what's his human rights record like? Um, and if we're hooked up with Kagame and people are upset at him, then what? So I don't, and I'd be anxious to hear from either of my patriots here about what the best answer is about, because what you'd like to do is say, we want the people to decide. We'll come in and support you know, political and economic freedom so that everybody... Yeah, but at the end of the day, you got to work with the governments that are there. Um, and, you know, I mentioned Ethiopia and Kenya. I've got a huge Ethiopian population in my district. They're not in love with the way their government does business, okay? And I don't know all the ins and outs of that, uh, but I don't doubt that there's some truth to that. Um, so that's the part that I haven't yet figured out. I mean, mostly you would like it to be local and organic so that the people choose their leaders. but. It doesn't always play out that way. And then what do you do? Do you work with the flawed leaders, try to make them better? Because then you're tainted. You're right. You know, if you're in there hanging out with a leader who's torturing you know, people, um, you're going to lose the faith of the population. And that's a very, very thorny problem um, that I think we need, we need to try um, and address as best as we can, not just go in there and support anyone irrespective of what they do, like we used to do. Uh, but even once you decide you're going to try to support the right people, it's not easy. I think in the military, we've got a couple of lines of operation. In regards to civil military relations, first of all, uh, you know, in our schools that we have, and again, we, we bring in military people from all around the world. And, uh, in those schools, uh, we emphasize uh, the uh, uh, role major role of the uh, civilian governments, rule of law, justice, and that. And then when we do operations, civil military affairs are a major part of what our plans are and how we are involved, whether it's Djibouti, uh, Chad, uh, Balkans, uh, East Timor, uh, places that I've been, all that has been an element of it where we know, and then again, you know, uh, my generation, uh, just, uh, Madison and I are, are uh, the same generation. Uh, coming out of Vietnam, uh, neither of us served there and most of my group didn't. Uh, what we saw was uh, the lessons that came out of that in terms of civil military operations and the relationship with the government. And uh, we also saw that 
you know, this is not about the gunfights. What this is about is being able to use all the elements of American power, uh, and that is economic, diplomatic, uh, development, uh, even the social. Uh, I've been in Jamina, uh, Chad, and you know, uh, uh, kids coming down the street with T-shirts with Elvis on it. I mean, we, we overwhelm people with with our uh, uh, with our society and our culture. I was in Cuba last year, and we're all over the place down there. So, I mean, we have such uh, food security. Uh, our ability uh, to share what we have, you know, we're going to have to feed uh, 10 billion people here in a few years. All of those are elements. And believe me, believe me, whether you're talking about Mattis or Carter Ham or Lee Gunn or anybody that's in the military, the last thing we want to do is fight. We're going to be prepared to do it. We want to use all the elements of our power uh, before we have to do that. When we fight, we fail. Other questions? There's someone, yeah, right in the back. Thank you very much. My name is Yaya Fanusi with the United States of Africa 2017 Project Task Force. I agree. Military will not solve it. You have to use non-military intervention and promotion inside Africa in order to avoid having insurgency which will threaten the United States of America. My role in this project is to recruit multimillionaires and multi-billionaires and institutional investors inside Africa and outside to support this project. I'm also lead person for the Special Operations Division of the project. If you don't push the direction that we are trying to tell Trump to do, to adopt this as his African policy, September, I'm going to recruit Putin, Cuba, Chi, India, and Brazil to make this the African policy. And there's nothing the United States could do about it. I came here in 1967. A couple things about that. I mean, first of all, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And that's one piece that I left out in the opening remarks is, uh, private sector investment is also crucial. Um, there's one nonprofit that I work with, um, with a woman who uh, used to live in Seattle, but um, the Eastern Congo Initiative. And they do a lot of different things in, in the Eastern Congo. One of the things they focus on is trying to get um, private companies to invest there. Um, so it's not all about government to government that you take advantage of the private sector. And as I mentioned, for the, all the struggles in Africa, and I should know statistics on this, but They've got like six or eight of the fastest growing economies in the world. There's an enormous amount of opportunity there, and we have to open it up so that the private sector will make those investments as well uh, to make it work. Um, the second thing I'll say is I'm not as freaked out by the fact that other countries want to play in Africa. Um, you know, I, I think that's fine. Um, now, China does it in a problematic way. But on the Armed Services Committee, we're all freaked out about how China's engaged. China's basically doing what we've been doing for 100 years, right? And we're all like, how dare they? You know, do you realize they have a base in Djibouti? Uh, yeah, so do we. Um, and we've got a lot more elsewhere. Now, I'm worried a little bit about China's malign intent and whether or not they're truly committed to economic and political freedom. 
But if they want to make an economic investment in Africa um, to help so that it grows, not necessarily a bad thing. That's an area where we could work with them. And forget about China for the moment. The other thing we need to do is not make this totally United States focused. I mean, Great Britain, the Department for International Development, is the best model um, for how to do development. I grant it, they're a government agency. I get that. Uh, but there are also private companies from other parts of the world that we can work with. So yes, we want to get the private sector involved, engaged, and investing. Um, and that's a piece that I would left out. So I agree with you, sir, and I, I wish you luck in, in what you're working on. It's incredibly important. When I graduated from uh, Martin, uh, again, I told my wife, that's the first promise I broke to her. I said, honey, three years and we're back on the farm. And we stayed in 36 years. She moved us 25 times. She was a real hero of the, of the family. But I'm back on the farm now, and uh, agriculture is a tremendous part of our national strength. Uh, and uh, I also learned that it can be a really uh, a negative, have a negative impact as well. Uh, one of the places I went to is Panape, which is in the Federated Republic of Micronesia in the Pacific, uh, place where a lot of combat occurred in World War II. And we went in after uh, the war and uh, we put in place several uh, programs. But uh, when I arrived there, one of the things that was very apparent was the health situation was terrible, diabetes, and, uh, obesity, and et cetera. And I was talking to the consul, and I said, uh, you know, what's the situation? He said, well, you know, when we came in after World War II, instead of teaching them how to farm and fish and all, we taught them how to open cans. And we provided them with donated food, and so the staple of the diet is spam. And so you had this impact that uh, we didn't expect. Uh, when I uh, visited with uh, my soybean association friends, uh, they told me about a project that's going on in Ghana. And what they're doing there is uh, they're helping develop the chicken industry. Uh, they're uh, helping them with genetics of the chickens. They're helping them with the, uh, the feed, the nutrition. Uh, they're helping them create uh, infrastructure that uh, provides the feed. And oh, by the way, they're also providing a market for U.S. soybean farmers. And after the tariff situation here, the Lord knows we're going to need that and others. And so, uh, you know, those projects right now are contributing to what in the USDA report that came out yesterday, that we're actually going to make progress around the world except in some of the few places like uh, uh, Central Africa, in closing that gap. You know, we've got 800 million people that go to bed hungry every night. And what we need to do is not export all the food, to them, but enable them to do a better job of producing that food. And that is a private uh, uh, venture, uh, public-private venture that can help not only them, but also us, and reduce the opportunities for chaos and the growth of terrorism. Apropos of what the, the general is saying, I think our overall approach to Africa needs not to be based on pity, but based on admiration. Uh, the more time I spend in Africa, the less pity I have for the people there, and the more admiration I have for their ability and their strength 
in their spirituality, in their ability to handle very challenged situations. Uh, and you look at the entrepreneurial spirit within the country, uh, within the continent, particularly among the women. Uh, I've been involved uh, in female literacy projects. And you know, if you look at all of the stats, the single most in significant independent variable in development is teach girls to read. Everything else comes from there. And so I think as we approach uh, Africa uh, as a partnership uh, where we both have uh, opportunities, where you know, they, they want to buy our soybeans to, f and, and to f feed their chickens, uh, that's the kind of approach that works better both from a strategic and a political standpoint. Uh, yeah. I'm, uh, my name's Amlai I'm originally from Somalia, Genesis Marine, um, and Iraq, and also So it is important you know, to oh. show uh, force as well as uh, diplomatic, and, and that's important. But for Somalia or Horn of Africa, it's unique. It is not just um, terrorism that we're dealing with. It's um, regional security, because there's a lot of competition, whether it's uh, the Gulf Arabs or, you know, the, and uh, other countries like uh, Turkey or uh, Iran that has interest, uh, security interest in, in, in Somalia. So um, I think Somalia is not just, it has a lot of natural resources. So um, security will come when there's food. So today, um, if for example, Al-Qaeda or any terrorist groups are in there, and they're providing security and food, then everybody is going to support them and work for them. So um, politics is a, is a big deal. And sometimes the, uh, the regional um, neighbors do not behave well. So uh, US can play a big role um, as far as you know, telling, uh, like for example, uh, Berbera port. Um, Saudi Arabia and Qatar are competing. Who's gonna and and, and United Arab Emirates? Who's gonna control that? So there's these are the things. But the biggest thing is when there is um, food, or um, then there's gonna be security. So I think there there has to be a change. Um, and we have to tell the, uh, the the regional neighbors uh, to behave well. Um, and that's that's all I wanted to add. You're right, T telling them to do that and getting them to do that are, 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 are two different things. But, but at the moment, I'm worried that we're not even telling them. Um, that's another part of this sort of, it's sort of hard to discern what the Trump foreign policy is exactly. Um, but human rights and doing the right thing has definitely taken a back seat at this point. And I think that undermines us. Yeah, uh, right there in the back. No, about halfway back, you. Yeah. First of all, thank you for coming here this morning. Your, um, <clears throat> excuse me, your insight is very enlightening. We appreciate it. Um, a common thread in a lot of these nations is that a lot of them are ideologically sterile. They have one worldview perspective, and they're very hesitant to move from that, um, especially on the area of religion, where um, that's a driving factor in a lot of these conflicts. You serve in other organizations, though, have shown where freedom of religion or belief is directly connected to prosperity abroad. How can the United States, without stepping on First Amendment issues or interfering too much in local culture, promote a diversity of beliefs and worldviews to encourage tolerance with each other without interfering too much in that nation's culture? So, well, to begin with, 
we cannot call up dictators and congratulate them when they consolidate power um, would be a good place to start. And, and I said I don't know exactly what Trump's foreign policy is, and that's true, but an aspect of it seems to be a backing away from exactly what you said. And part of our commitment in, in the U.S. was the notion that freedom in general works. I realize I'm quoting George W. Bush at this point. Um, but economic, political, and religious freedom allows societies to prosper and reduces conflict. Um, and if I have an overarching fear right now, um, and I have many, um, but the one is we seem to be going tribal on a global basis, that we're moving away from what you're talking about. And religion is, is certainly part of it. Um, we've seen that in our own country. When you started asking that question, I was like, why don't we start at home um, you know, by you know, promoting religious freedom when we've seen the, the increase um, in, in bigotry in this country. So I think that's incredibly important. But the simple place to start is to have that as the model, to say that the US, we believe, we believe in our own constitution. Um, freedom of religion, you know, econ economic, political, and religious freedom are the right way to run a society. Um, and we're going to try to encourage that. Um, I think that's very, very important. But like I said, globally, we're, we're moving away from that. And, and certainly, you know, Osama bin Laden had more success in dividing the world than I think any of, uh, any of us would have liked. And we need to move back to a place where we respect that. And it's hard to, it's hard to fix it overseas but we can start at home in terms of promoting those policies and promoting that type of freedom. And what I'm specifically talking about is, well, I'll just one quick point and I'll stop. Um, everyone got on Trump's case for calling up Putin and congratulating him on winning his election. Um, President Obama called up Putin six years before and did the same thing. I mean, to a certain extent, when you're the leader of a country like that, you have to do that stuff, I guess. But the more troubling thing was when President Trump called up President Erdogan in Turkey after he passed the constitutional amendment that basically stripped opposition of their rights, reduced political freedom, reduced freedom of the press, and congratulated him on that. That you didn't need to do. So I, I am deeply, deeply worried that our president and our administration right now doesn't support what you just said. And you're right. I mean, that's going to bring greater peace and stability. A lot of the conflict throughout Africa is tribal and religious. And you've got to promote tolerance for people who don't believe exactly the same way as you do um, if you're going to be able to succeed. And sorry, I think there's something when I was in Kenya, and I know now you've spent a lot of time there. They had their election, this is a while back now, when it was very close. The side that lost rioted, and basically thousands of people wound up dead. Um, I was there in between elections, and what they did is they went out and they got a bunch of young professionals to go out and educate people on what representative democracy means. And one of the biggest points that they educated them on was, sometimes you lose, and that's okay, all right? What we want is, is a system and a rule of law that applies equally to everybody, not your side wins, your side gets the spoils. And the next election was better, so I think Kenya really presented a great model of how do you educate people to be tolerant of views different than theirs, uh, to be tolerant of the fact that you're not always going to get your way. So I've seen some areas like that. Regrettably, here at home, we seem to be going in the opposite direction. 
So you make an incredibly important point. Um, we just got to sort of turn that, that particular wheel around. I think we started small ways. Uh, went down to Sarajevo to coordinate airdrops into the Muslim enclaves uh, during the uh, Bosnian Civil War. And I uh, was working for a French general and uh, working in his headquarters. And of course, the uh, elements in that particular war were, uh, were Catholic, uh, Serbs, Orthodox, and, uh, and Muslims. So when we had any organization the, uh, that brought in uh, the locals, all three were represented. And it's uh, amazing what happens uh, when you have uh, um, stimulation to work together and to cooperate and learn about other instead of being on the opposite side of rifles shooting at each other. Much better said. Yeah, um, man with the beard right back. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Congressman, for this great panel and for being here. Um, I think you touched on something really important with uh, new policies on the Trump administration, especially civilian casualties. If the Democrats take the House back in November, is that something that you would support House holding hearings on? Absolutely. I think a lot more oversight should be done um, because all this is going on and people aren't really noticing. I think that's, there's a number of reasons for that, but one of them is, you know, we have the first reality television president. Um, and I don't mean that sarcastically or as a critic, that's just a fact, okay? Every day he's on Twitter and people are paying attention to what he said about Germany hate you, love you, hate you, uh, whatever. Um, and it distracts from any sort of focus on the policies. So I think most people don't know what has happened on this. So I think oversight would be important. The other piece of it, and, I, and I'm working right now with uh, Congressman Khanna on, on something surrounding Yemen uh, to try to get us to play a more positive role there and not support blindly the Saudi Arabia and UAE war um, in, in Yemen. But if we Democrats don't recognize that national security matters, um, that the DOD has a reason to exist, that we do face threats and defense is important, then our credibility is shot. Um, and you know, so we, we've got to acknowledge that there are legitimate roles for the military. Um, you know, I mean, I mentioned Anwar al That's a very controversial thing. We killed him, um, and there's a lot of people who think that was wrong. Um, and I'm sorry, but if a guy's putting bombs on airplane, sending them to my country, I kind of want our government to kill him, okay, um, before he kills us. I'd prefer, to be honest with you, that they capture him, and they try him, and they go through the normal process, okay? Would very much prefer that, um, but we need to be able to defend ourselves. So while we're increasing oversight, we also have to be knowledgeable about what, what the threat is. Now, I think the threat is blown way out of proportion, but it's still there. So I think that's going to be the trick. If we get control back, we'll have the opportunity to exercise oversight, but do we exercise it effectively in a way that actually changes the policy for the better? We have time for a few more questions. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hi, I'm Scott Lancel with Geopol to U.S. Small Business. I was thrilled to hear this discussion. It synchronizes very well with what was going on uh, yesterday at the Armed Services Committee, talking about USAID, DOD, 
um, and State Department coordination across addressing a lot of the issues in the developing world with Africa really being a hub of that. I'm curious whether you feel that the agencies that are involved in, in, in the African environment truly have a pulse on what the people are saying in Africa, talking a access to people beyond just the capitals, just beyond the people that are on their, on their smartphones or beyond just general perception. Are, is there ability to reach out and understand what's going on to help predict potential emerging threats or changes in behavior and maybe tapping into one of the uh, other uh, respondents a co concept about a better understanding of local appreciation? Quickly, no, I don't think we do. And I think a big part of that is we don't have the resources um, for either the, at the State Department, USAID. Um, they're doing the best they can with a very, very limited budget. Uh, yeah, at the very back. Yeah. Thank you for taking my question. Um, and Congressman, thank you very much for your support of special operations. Um, two very brief questions. First, regarding the national security strategy, and both of the questions actually do have to do with messaging. Um, the national security strategy um, focuses on business and focuses on economic ties to Africa. Um, my concern is whether or not you are addressing or encouraging Congress to address the perception of neocolonialism that's coming through business ties and that's coming through um, U.S. businesses and small businesses encouraging liaison. And there's very little that's been said regarding encouraging the um, local entrepreneurs above the individual microeconomic um, um, conductivity um, and the second question has to do with, um, again, U.S. messaging regarding African foreign policy, that um, most of the time when we hear Africa foreign policy, it doesn't um, segment into the 54 countries and address the direct bilateral relationships that could be um, grown a bit more. And I was wondering your perceptions on the reception that the United States might get if we did actually do more of the um, advertising and messaging about the stronger bilateral relationships that we have. Thank you. I think that would be incredibly important. Again, that's primarily a resources and focus issue. Um, and, you know, it's been well documented that there are a lot of positions unfilled at the State Department and elsewhere. And, um, you know, so yes, country by country, instead of treating Africa as one big, you know, amorphous place, uh, bilateral relationships would help you know, increase our understanding and also the respect that people have for us. Um, and I totally take your point on U.S. corporations. I mean, I mean, you know, part of the reason we propped up Mobutu was because of um, anti-communism, but part of the reason also was so U.S. businesses could go and do what they wanted, and people are aware of that as well. So I, I think there, there's a lot we could do on that, but you said it best. The best thing we could do is support and encourage local uh, businesses in their growth and opportunity. Um, partnerships with U.S. companies. Um, and that's really the problem with the Chinese model is, yeah, they'll help, but it's got to all be their company, their jobs. They're not really helping the local population much. So I totally agree with what you said. That would be one of the best ways to improve relationships. Uh, yes, sir. <clears throat> changed our, our national security system for making decisions, National Security Council, National Economic Council, 
it's been politicized and it's come down so the professionals who do things from the ground up, do issues, are not involved. And now, uh, I think basically, he, he's talked bilateral, and the question is, where is Africa going to fit in there? We're talking about, I served on the U.S. Retaliation Committee, it was a billion dollars. Now you're talking about 13 billion for Canada, 30 billion for the EU, 200 billion for China, where is Africa in there? It's just, it's insignificant. And so why were we going to spend any time uh, addressing some of these issues where you've got troops on the ground who, in the model you talked about, agriculture is more important than M16s. So we're not, Africa is not going to be in there anywhere. Yeah. Now, look, I mean, it's a legitimate, legitimate concern. I mean, there's only so much the U.S. can do. But there are other things that we can at least be part of. Um, we, we can make sure that what we do is positive instead of negative. Um, and you know, move forward with some of the policies that we both talked about earlier. And then again, I'll come back to it. Doesn't, it doesn't just have to be the U.S. government. Um, you know, the private sector can play an enormous role here. And even you know, following up on the, on, on the woman's comment in the back, um, our businesses can partner with local businesses. Um, and we can let, that's where the resources are. You're right. I mean, the U.S. government is not going to have the resources to do the bilateral country by country, all 54 countries, one-on-one -on -one relationships to do MCC for every single country. To, we're not going to have the resources to do that, but we can make sure that what we do do is helpful. And then really, you know, the resources lie on the private side. Um, and we can partner with U.S. and other, other foreign companies as well to help grow economic opportunity in Africa through, through that way. That, that would be one way to leverage resources. But no, I don't want to create any illusion here that we're going to dedicate, you know, 50% of the State Department's budget to building relationships in Africa. There's a lot going on in the world, um, but we can do better than we're doing right now, uh, even within the resources that we're using. Uh, we have time for oh, General. Go ahead. Oh. We have time for one more question. Uh, yeah, sir, in the in the orange shirt. Um, thank you so much. I'm Theo Sutter from the Friends Committee on National Legislation and Congressman. Um, I'm really heartened to hear your support for diplomacy and development, particularly in terms of funding. Um, you know, over the last, you know, since the Trump administration came in, uh, it's been great to see the bipartisan pushback against the cuts in the 150 account uh, that the White House has proposed. Uh, but it's essentially remained flat. Um, and, and what, certainly what I, I'm hearing you say today is that we need, we need to continue to increase our investments in diplomacy and development, and particularly in conflict prevention and peace building initiatives. I'm wondering from your perspective what the appetite is on the Hill, both from Democrats and perhaps from Republicans as well, to, to make those increases, to actually think through strategically invest in uh, conflict prevention and peace building initiatives uh, on the continent and perhaps elsewhere as well? Well, I think that there are some positive developments happening. Um, and I'm working together right now with uh, Ted Yoho, um, who's the co-chair with me of the Caucus for Effective Foreign Assistance. And all I knew about Ted Yoho when I first heard, he, was, he took over for Andrew Crenshaw, who was who I was working with in the first place. There was some article in the New Yorker after Ted had gotten elected about how he was the definitive Tea Party lunatic, basically. Um, he's not. Um, he's a veterinarian. He's very interested in this stuff. We co-sponsored right now the BUILD Act, 
which is designed to increase the amount what, what OPIC and other investment, uh, U.S. government investments in other countries can be and to improve that. And now we're, we're working on some new ideas to do that. So I actually think there is an appetite in a bipartisan way um, to really focus on improving development. Um, the, the, the only sort of but to that is within a very limited resource environment. Um, we're not going to have a ton of money for this, but I think there is bipartisan support right now for focusing on developing more and doing it better. Well, I want to uh, thank the general and thank, thank the congressman for coming. Um, this has been a very, very informative and helpful uh, conversation, and I'm very, very pleased that we ended it on the bipartisanship. So thank you very much. I think so.